Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. It's the year 1947, a year of two partitions. Pakistan acclaims the transfer of British power as Mr. Jinnah, Governor-General of the New Dominion, arrives at the Constituent Assembly in Karachi. First, the independent nations of India and Pakistan came into being at midnight on August 15. Meanwhile, in Delhi, the stage was set for British rule to give place to the New Dominion of India. Then, in the Middle East, the newly created United Nations proposed another partition. At Flushing, Long Island, the General Assembly of the United Nations has made its decision on Palestine. The map shows what partition means. The Jewish state colored light, the Arab state dark, Jaffa to go to the Arabs, Jerusalem internationalized. On November 29, they voted to split British Palestine into Arab and Jewish states. 1947 was a year when you could almost hear the tectonic plates of history straining against each other. There were new borders, new international institutions, and the looming threat of new wars. Today on Ideas, the fifth installment in our series, The Shock of the New. We're exploring what Salman Rushdie calls a hinge moment in history, moments when all must be remade, rethought, reimagined, and rewritten. Our panelists are Cindy Ewing, Professor of History at the University of Toronto, Sanjay Ruparelia, Professor of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University, and Besma Mumani, Professor of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. This is the year 1947, Fractures and Tectonic Shifts. So I wanted to start just by giving you each a chance, maybe a couple of minutes to talk about when you think about 1947, what is a story or a personality or an anecdote that comes to mind when you think of that year? Cindy, I'd like to start with you. Sure. Well, we think of 1947 as being part of the post-war, this time of peace after the Second World War, the most devastating conflict in history to this point. But I'd like to remind you of this moment that took place in the summer of 1947, the royal government of the Netherlands launched a military offensive against the Indonesian Republican government, the Republican cabinet. This military um, offense called Operation Product took place July 21st, 1947, and it led to the arrest of the entire cabinet of the Indonesian government. This remained an issue of international crisis, um, a topic that was discussed uh, by the United Nations that became a subject uh, discussed by the Security Council for about two years until Indonesia regained its independence in 1950. So I think of that moment as being um, part of the violence of 1947, that the post-war peace 
of the Second World War actually brought about the resurgence of um, colonial warfare in some parts of the world, especially in Asia and Africa. Thank you, Cindy. And Sanjay? It's a it's a, such a momentous year. So it's the establishment of the, the GATT and the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the beginning of the Marshall Plan, the Truman Doctrine. But I think for me, partly because I'm of Indian origin and I study India, it's principally my area of work, it's, it would have to be what's happening in the subcontinent. And the figure that really stands out is Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, India's first prime minister. And I'm going to cheat a little bit and say so there's three interconnected moments. One's mm. in January when the Constituent Assembly, which is creating a new constitution for India, it met between 46 and 49. So in January 47, it closes its opening session. And he says that the aim of this assembly is to create a sovereign democratic republic, which is committed to justice, liberty, equality, and fraternity. In March, Nehru hosts the Asian Relations Conference, which is the forerunner of the non-line movement, which develops in the 50s. And then, of course, on August 15th, uh, India becomes independent, but also through the partition of the subcontinent to India and Pakistan, which is a colossal human tragedy. And so these three moments really do come together because the first really represents India's democratic revolution, which I think many scholars now see as the sort of the third great one in modern world, sort of from the French and the American to the Indian. Uh, it's the beginning of the non-aligned movement in some ways, or its forerunners, although Cindy will know much more about this than I do. But then it's also the tragedy of, of partition and the question of what is the basis of these new nation states in the post-colonial world. Wonderful. Besma. Yeah, similar to Sanjay, I think um, two things. Um, certainly, the, the liberal international order is born uh, at this time, where we think about, indeed, these organizations, what are the, the IMF, World Bank, the GATT, I mean, all of the, the real core rules of the trading system, of the finance system, are all, if you will, codified at this time. And uh, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but they're being challenged from within. And so certainly today, I think there is a real pushback to all those rules. Um, similar to the partition of, of India, the partition of Palestine comes in 1947 as well. This is when the United Nations, again, a very, very new organization, only two years old, basically effectively talks about the partition of Palestine into two, the state of Palestine and the state of Israel. As we all know, the state of Palestine has not come to fruition. And we have a basically set of six to seven wars. If you count some of the smaller ones, I think we would get to 10, 11, 12. Um, and certainly, I still a very core, you know, core sore point throughout the entire Middle East. So those are two key, I think, things and that um, uh, we're still very much, I think, uh, reeling with the events of 1947 till today. Yeah. You've all mentioned um, aspects, of course, that we'll touch on throughout this discussion, but can we maybe just go backwards slightly and think about the decade or the years leading up to 1947? And I'll stay with you, Besma. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what the forces were that mm -hmm. kind of informed what happened in 47? You mentioned a couple of them. Yeah. Well, certainly, I mean, you know, it's only now, I think, um, and I say this sadly, and certainly I know Cindy's been working on this for a lot longer, but we're starting to understand colonization writ large. I think this is, we've had an awakening, I think, in Canada, which is, you know, long overdue to understand the forces of colonization. But, you know, these are these were the test cases throughout the entire southern world of colonization. And, you know, certainly, you know, Sanjay talks about, um, you know, the partition of India. It, it, you don't have to look far, but the very same people who devised the idea of partition of India were the ones that were, you know, devising the partition of Palestine. And it was a very basic premise that you can't have people who are different live up together, which was so, you know, incredibly sad. And all of a sudden you have a foreign force telling you, you are not to be 
to live together. You must each take your own states, if you will. And and as, as we saw in India, probably the worst of all kind of human migration, you know, there's a, a literal picture I think always stands out to me of, you know, just a line of people going one way and a line of people going the other way mm-hmm. to divide India. And it's just horrific to think, and these were neighbors. Cindy, when you look at that that decade before, what are some of the the forces, the tectonic plates that were leading to some of these events that Basma's talking about? Yeah, Basma's point that this is a moment of change and division. One of the things that I always tell my students is that this moment, the 1940s, is the largest expansion of the international system in history. We get the birth of more countries, more nation states than we've ever seen before. But we have to keep in mind at what expense. Mm -hmm. And not only is this a moment of birth of new countries, it's also a moment of stillbirth that Palestine does not become a sovereign state in this moment. Partition is the creation of boundaries. This is very much a reflection of the energies of the great power states after the Second World War. The Second World War is extremely exhausting to Britain, to the United States, which arises, of course, as the most powerful country in the world at the end of the conflict. But the exhaustion of colonial powers uh, for France, for Spain, for the Netherlands, means that holding on to their territories overseas becomes a great challenge. It's a financial burden. Do we hold on to these countries? Do we continue to manage, administrate these places? And the British say, no, we are going to divide Palestine. We are going to grant sovereignty to India and the creation of Pakistan. And unfortunately, this is a process of great violence. So one of the forces that I would point to in the 1940s is a process of mass violence and displacement of people. Uh, that the war itself and then the aftermath of the war creates all kinds of conflicts, the rise of international terrorism, civil civil wars in many um, post-colonial states take place in the 1940s. So I want to emphasize that it's a moment of great violence and remaking of what it means to be independent or to be a state. Sanjay, pick up on that if you if you if you don't mind, and talk about if you don't if you don't mind uh, the idea of how the wars affected the way the world thought about global governance and the institutions that were being put into place. No, that's a really important question. If you think about forty-seven as the beginning of the Cold War, so then you how do you trace that back? Well, the Russian Revolution. You have to go back several decades to nineteen seventeen, and of course, we know nineteen forty-nine is the other great revolution uh, is China. So those are kind of bookends. And so war is the the engine, a violent engine of history and change. The other thing, though, I think is so important, and it's great resonances to today, is, of course, the crash of 29 and the Great Depression. And that was the realization that what we call, you know, what we call sort of the principle of laissez-faire economics, that the market decides how societies should be governed themselves, and that the dictates of the market determine how how societies uh, should respond, it all came falling apart in the Great Depression. And it's in this period, of course, that we see the birth of advanced welfare states in the North Atlantic world and Western Europe and in North America and Japan. And that's really crucial because we think back now to those 30 years, the French call it les 30 glorieux, the three glorious decades. Why were they glorious? Because you had a commitment to full employment You had a welfare state that was created in many of these countries, our countries here in the West. But governments were allowed and justified in intervening and protecting segments of the population from the depredations of a world market economy. And so those three decades were crucial for stabilizing our democracies in the West, um, but had a very different picture in the South. That's what I would think about. Besma, do you want to pick up on that? Just when you think yeah. about global institutions, just the, the, the effect of the war in mm-hmm. the design of these organizations and the purpose behind them. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we, we need to remember that the idea of the nation state, 
was born then. And and this is really quite simple. You know, the state we understand, it's territory, it's institutions, it's it's a government, so to speak. But the nation is that nebulous concept. It's that factor of, of feeling like we, right? It, it's, it defines us. And the key point here is that, you know, in 1947, people did not necessarily see themselves as a part of a state. They didn't think of themselves that way. They thought of themselves in terms of their culture, their identity, that was their nation. And so we're forcing people to basically become a part of a state. And and marrying that point of having a nationhood and a state where the state itself does not encompass one nation, but many, many nations, becomes the greatest political exercise in trying to think about how do you get control and stability in a society. So obviously in a democracy, I think we all come to this point and certainly think about Canada here that we we, we may be very different across this country, but we all vote to to create the state that is, is in theory meant to represent us. What do you do when you have a country like India where you have hundreds and hundreds of nations, hundreds of different people who identify as being different, and now you're forcing them to be thought of as a statehood. And so the political exercise then becomes either repression, right? So you either force people to start to self-identify. Um, certainly we start to see states build mythologies of themselves, which, you know, as, as you know, as I would teach my students, uh, the easiest way and the simplest is to start to create an us versus them. And so conflict starts to brew. The United Nations at that time in 1947 had 56 members. Yeah. Right. And we know today, I mean, we're at 200 plus, but if we were to just go by the concept of nation, we would have thousands of representatives at the UN. Mm -hmm. So here is an institution of 50 so-called states and entities determining the course of the world, voting to say, you know, uh, yes, we're going to partition India into two, three, if you count sort of East Pakistan as well, the future Bangladesh. Similarly, that you'd have with the Middle East. And so this is the real challenge here is that we are forcing people to identify as something else and that political exercise to get that state to function as such really unleashes repression and autocracy and a whole bunch of wars um, in ways that I think we can't measure because it is so catastrophic. Speaking of the United Nations, um, in 1945, one of the, the the charter of the United Nations, one of the key purposes uh, or stated purposes was to, quote, affir- reaffirm the equal rights of nations, large and small. I'm wondering, Cindy, like, how did that change geopolitics at the time? Yeah, so um, the United Nations is very much premised on this idea of the sovereign equality of nations, right, that all states or all nation states, as Besma pointed out, um, have an equal say in international affairs. We can discuss the practicalities and the realities of this type of system. But in 1945, there really was an effort to try to shape um, how peace would be settled, created at the end of the war in a way that would involve um, a more inclusive process. So rather than the great power states let's say the most powerful countries of Europe alone determining the terms of a settled peace, this would be something that would be done by consensus involving many states. And so this idea of sovereign equality, it's important that the charter points out nations large and small. And so small is really pointing to these small nations or small countries that don't possess the economic or military power of some of the more historic great powers. And this was a way to really bring in new nation states, Countries like India, which were perceived at the time and very much were weaker militarily and economically uh, to participate into um, the decisions of international affairs. So this really was a fundamental change in thinking about how um, the, the rules, the behaviors of international peace would be determined. This becomes the stage for involving countries that previously did not have a say uh, publicly uh, to now participate and 
really emphasize their own um, needs and priorities. And that fundamentally changes um, international relations through the next few decades as well. And on the eve of, of 1947, of course, we have um, Churchill in his famous speech in 1946, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the Iron Curtain speech, uh, setting the stage for this long period of Cold War. H- how has or how did the Cold War back then, Sanjay, in that period leading up to 47, contribute to the shaping of the world order that w- as it was being formed at the time? Yeah, I mean, this is such an important um, period. I was thinking what Cindy was saying about the UN. What's really striking, there's a there's a terrific history by historian Mark Matsar uh, called No Enchanted Palace. And it's a history of the United Nations. And he says, you know, how is the UN created? And he said, we often think of it as, as Cindy was saying, this incredibly important institution which uh, recognizes the sovereign equality of nations. But in this history, you know, what he shows is r- remarkable. He says the the architects of the UN were the same architects of the League of Nations, uh, which which failed, uh, created 1920 and, and, and failed through the 30s. And in fact, some of the architects were, um, well, let's how we should, they're basically defenders of colonialism. Um, so mm-hmm. Britain and France very much came to the UN uh, in Dumbarton Oaks in their 1940s, not thinking that they were going to have to relinquish their empires. So this proliferation of members of the United Nations was never foreseen when the UN was created. And in fact, it was, uh, according to historians, some people like Matsar are saying, it was actually someone like Nehru and then others who turned the General Assembly into a platform for anti-colonialism. And they really pushed that. And it was in 1946, the same year that Churchill gives a famous speech with the Iron Curtain falling, that Nehru takes the issue of South Africa denying voting rights and residential permits to Indians in the Transvaal to the floor of the General Assembly. And it electrifies and it radicalizes the possibilities of the UN. And that's important because the UN has something that the League of Nations didn't have, which is a Security Council in which there's a veto for the permanent member. So you have this remarkable institution that on the one hand is remarkably egalitarian in the sense that it's one country, one vote, if you're recognized. At least on paper. (laughs) <laughs> on paper. But then you have a Security Council that gives a veto to the five most important powers at the time. And so it's this incredible hinge moment because you see the beginning of the end of the old European empires, but you see the creation of an American empire and the Soviet empire as well. Yeah. And so there's that incredible moment where these two different timescapes are colliding. I was wondering, for any of you, to, uh, to what extent you think that these new institutions, the UN and IMF and NATO and all of them, were actually being shaped by nations outside of the West? Was that actually happening, do you think, at any level? Back then? Yeah. I mean, certainly there have been historians that looked back at the, for example, the Bretton Woods uh, meeting where the IMF and the World Bank were first created and did say that, indeed, there were inputs of development thought that came from uh, many parts of the global south into the thinking. But I think that's a bit of an optimistic view. I think if you look very carefully, uh, the rules were made for those of the victors, right? This is what we know about history throughout. And certainly the the global trading system, the finance system, the development system were created in mind to sort of keep uh, many Western powers. By then, of course, it's not just the the colonial powers. It includes now the United States to be supreme and, and to continue to hold the reins. And, and I, certainly there was a point of compromise. I mean, I think if you think about the fact that, um, you know, in 1947, uh, the designers of the United Nations still felt that it was a compelling to have countries like China. I mean, China at that time was really quite weak uh, 
um, you know, thinking about having a country like Russia or back then the Soviet Union was a compromise to the cooperation during the Cold War, or at least, sorry, to World War II, where they did cooperate, the Allies and um, and the Russians. I think that there was uh, an effort there to, to think through um, how to get countries on board, but I, I would say it was mostly cosmetic. I mean, mm-hmm. if you really dig deep into the rules of the system, what we refer to as the liberal institutional order today, um, they are very much designed to really benefit the West, and they still do. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have so many countries today who are saying, enough is enough. We're, we're not going to abide uh, by the rules of the game that you created to really benefit you. Sanjay? Yeah, I, I was just, I think, uh, as Besma was saying, what's striking about the, the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and the International Monetary Fund when they are created, the World Bank, they were there was a built-in bias. I mean, they're very important for the West. They stabilized these societies that have been devastated by war uh, in Europe. But they were biased towards dealing with the problems of advanced industrialized democracies, which is why in the 1950s, this is also the birth of the whole discipline of development economics. Mm -hmm. So you have figures initially, particularly from Latin America, Raul Prebisch, who becomes the director of the UN Economic Commission for Latin America and you know has a diagnosis and says well these countries have suffered 200 years of imperialism and the industrialization of the west was very much at the expense of the south and these institutions while they're very important for the west can we develop and so there was a there was a whole drive to create new institutions in the United Nations system that would be more directly concerned with the problems of underdevelopment in the post-colonial world. So you have in 1964 the creation of the UN Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD, which is still, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to understand the views of the Global South when it comes to the international political economy, that's what, you know, that's the organization whose reports are really important that you read because they begin to realize that the Bretton Woods system, which is so important for the West to stabilize itself, was not really concerned about the problems of underdevelopment. And so, long way of saying that, you know, I think what's very interesting is how institutions, even ones that are created by certain architects for certain purposes, they can be turned around by by political agency. And that's what a lot of these statesmen were trying to do. What can the UN do that it wasn't designed to do? I want to step away just briefly from the geopolitics of of that time and and the machinations of these institutions that were being created and talk about the what was happening in writing and culture and, and Cindy I thought I'd ask you this that you know decolonization that was happening at the time drove a whole new strand of of writing um and it changed at the time the way we think about identity and nation and so I'm, I'm wondering what role you think generally speaking writers and artists were playing in this new era of decolonization. Yeah, so I just want to emphasize that, you know, this moment in history is a moment of great political change. This is a time of great production, ferment. And so in this setting, there still are idolists who try to bring together these different post-colonial states. And so Sanjay mentioned Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, the first prime minister of India. And in 1947, in March and April of that year, he hosts the Asian Relations Conference, which Sanjay mentioned. This is the very first conference of post-colonial states in history. You now bring together uh, brown and black delegations, um, not governments, not diplomats, not state leaders, writers, artists, dancers, um, many of whom themselves have theatrical backgrounds or who participated in the freedom struggle for their countries, who then seek to um, build universities, 
to try to uh, foster cultural events and uh, interconnections between these different post-colonial states. So the Asian Relations Conference, it's attended by over 50,000 people, mm-hmm. takes place in the Red Fort in, uh, in Delhi. And it's this momentous occasion of cultural flourishing, um, representatives from 29 different countries, now new countries um, in Asia um, and, and Africa. And so this is, for me, a part of the post-colonial culture that emerges um, and is the basis for many other uh, such conferences, Afro-Asian Writers Workshop is formed in this time as well. So we start to see um, a literary movement emerge around post-colonial identity, around being um, a new nation state in the legacy of previous empire. Sanjay, what would you point out as a good example of that? They put me on the spot. (laughs) Um, 1950s, I think, is a moment when, and there might be some of you here in the audience who know this better than I, you know, I think if you're looking at India, film becomes central Mm-hmm. to nation building. You know, nation building is about what are the cultural resources that make a particular nation distinctive. And of course, as we know, nationalism is much about remembering as forgetting. So, you know, it's it's not a straightforward exercise. But I think in the 50s, you begin to see, you know, very important works of literature that are being published in, in India and, of course, many of the other states and Africa in the 1960s. If you think of the sort of the great figures of post-colonial literature, the Achebes, uh, the Nagugis and so on. They're writing in this period in the 50s and 60s because they're trying in a sense to say, you know, who are we? What was our history? How did colonialism reshape our societies? This is Thelonious Monk's first studio recording of his Round Midnight, recorded in a studio in New York on November 21st, 1947. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. This is a song by Ustad Bismillah Khan, whose music was played at the Red Fort in Old Delhi on August 15, 1947, the day India and Pakistan became independent nations. On the day after, thousands of people gathered outside the Red Fort to watch Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru raise the new Indian flag above the Lahore Gate. You're listening to the year 1947, Fractures and Tectonic Shifts. Our panelists are Cindy Ewing, Professor of History at the University of Toronto, Sanjay Ruparelia, Professor of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University, and Besma Momani, Professor of Political Science at the University of Waterloo.
So let's talk about the main event of 1947, where, you know, one of the main events that you um, know a lot about, which is the partition of India. What models for nation states do we get in the creation of India and Pakistan? Right. So the constitution that India promulgates in 1950 is, is a remarkable uh, experiment. And it is trying to create a secular democratic republic in a country which had suffered this horrendous tragedy of partition. And it was trying to reject what um, you know, some, some votaries of Pakistan called the two-nation theory. So the idea that every nation should have a state. And what was distinctive about the nation was its religion or its language or its culture. And it was always in the singular, it was uniform. So what's very striking about India, the constitution, is saying we are a country of hundreds and thousands of languages, 15 recognized. We are a secular, we're trying to create secularism in a way that, n- that n- no society in history has attempted because secularism in the West meant separation of church and state and either the French model where it's freedom from religion or the American model is freedom, religious liberty, freedom to religion. And India was then trying to handle a situation of how do you have a society in which is predominantly Hindu but has massive populations, communities are Muslim, Christian, Jain, Buddhist, atheist, and so on. So trying to create a secularism of, there's no model, they're creating it anew. And how do you create a democracy that has universal franchise when 80% of the population is illiterate? It's astonishing. Mm -hmm. So in India, 1947, every man and woman, adult, regardless of educational background, property, qualification, is entitled to vote, a full citizen. So just put it in perspective, it takes till the 1960s before the United States becomes a full democracy, right? And they do it at the stroke of a hat. They go from a suffrage of around 30% of the population in 1946 to 100%. So they're trying to create something that hadn't been attempted before. And it's a remarkable experiment, which is why I think more and more scholars of democracy now recognize it as the sort of third great democratic revolution. And like all democratic revolutions, there are very dark undersides. So we know the American Revolution was built on, was part and parcel of it was a society built on chattel slavery and the dispossession of indigenous peoples. The French Revolution, right, had this incredibly complex revolution, which had all kinds of other violent tendencies. And it takes France 150 years to stabilize as a democracy. So you have, you know, I, I think India represents this really remarkable experiment. And up until the 1970s, it remains a democracy. It has a two-year spell of emergency rule. And then in very Indian fashion, it ends with an election. Yeah, <laughs> of course. You know. yeah. So Sanjay described Indian democracy as an experiment. What is the status of that experiment today? It's in severe trouble. India has been governed since 2014 by uh, the Hindu nationalist party, the Bharatiya Janata Dal. And it's the most powerful presence in, in, in politics in India. But the ideology of the BJP uh, is Hindu nationalism, and it's a direct repudiation of the constitution of India of 1950, which was to create a secular democracy. So there's an attempt to make India uh, a Hindu nation, in a sense to what, what Hindu nationals would see as the unfinished business of partition. That partition was a creation of Pakistan as a homeland for Muslims. And so they always felt they were committed to creating India as a homeland for Hindus. 
there is a narrowing of the understanding of citizenship. The natural citizen of India today, according to the BJP, is a Hindu. So minorities are very much at risk. And and it's it's a very dangerous moment in India. I, I just want to quickly read something that Rushdie says about being a child of 47. He says, I was a member of the first generation of free Indian children to be born in over two centuries, infused with the spirit of new liberty, but carrying with us also the knowledge of blood of the great massacres of Muslims by Hindus and Hindus by Muslims that attended the, that moment of freedom. A transient generation is exceptional. It is neither of the past nor wholly of the future. And it was my gift as a writer to have that unique moment as my birthright. How closely do you think that resembles the average of experience of the children of 1947 back then? I think the events of partition, you know, are seared into public consciousness and individual memory. I mean, my own mother is from Sindh, which is now in Pakistan, and her earliest memories are of the riots of 1947 in August. Her family was Hindu. My grandfather's best friend was Muslim, and he protected them. And he basically allowed them to escape by boat from Karachi to Bombay. And I think so it's incredibly, it's a definitive moment, I think, um, for every family. Yeah. Um, and, and it carries through to today, of course, because you can't understand the politics, the really tragic politics in India today um, without understanding that, in a sense, it's these struggles that have kind of carried through to the present. Absolutely, um, yeah. I'm wondering whether they carried through another part of the world at the time, Basma. Like, I'm just, if you could address how that partition in India mm -hmm. actually influenced politics in the Middle East, whether, you know, where, again, there was another partition on the table. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, the, the greatest parallel, of course, is Israel and Palestine, um, the partition there. You know, I think one of the things that also comes out of the 1950s, if I may, you know, is this real uh, frustration with getting their economies going, right? You've created the rules of the of the system in terms of liberal internationalism and uh, the terms of trade, if you will. And now these new states, as I said, they're states. They're not nation states because there are many nations kind of forced into one. How do they start to feed their population? How do they create this identity? And so, in fact, this is a time of great militarization because the military becomes a very easy fix to a perennial problem, right? How do you organize a whole bunch of people who don't self-identify as one mm -hmm. and get the economy going? And we see this throughout, whether it's the Middle East, Latin America, Southeast Asia. The challenge here, of course, and as I said with um, my previous point, is so much of these states are artificial, they're they're literally drawn artificially based on, you know, and a meeting often in in, in the West. Yeah. Um, and so there's this great line that I use um, for um, explaining, you know, one border that um, I'm quite familiar with in the Middle East, and it's the Jordanian border, where there is a fact this very really clear straight line, except for this one little area where there's just a little bit of a divot. It makes absolutely no sense. There's no you know, geographic reason for that. There's no tribal reason for that, nothing. And it's called, you know, the Churchill hiccup because basically it was a place where Winston Churchill in drawing the lines had a hiccup. And I, you know, and I, and it's very funny, right? Except if you are in fact a tribe on one side now separated from your family on the other mm -hmm. side, which frankly exists throughout the entire Middle East, you know, many parts of, of Africa, throughout parts of Southeast Asia, all because someone far, far away believed that this is where a line should go to separate you. Cindy, could you talk about back to the vote in 1947 in November, just how that division between 
you know, international members shaped the way the world saw that conflict, but also, you know, what, what does it tell us about how that conflict was set up to either succeed or fail? When Britain announced in the end of 1946 that it would allow Palestine to be partitioned, it was because of just how unpopular the British mandate of Palestine was in Britain itself. But at the UN, this became a recurring issue, the need to address the status of Palestine. Among the members of the UN, the members of the UN General Assembly, this was the very first major international crisis that the General Assembly had to face as a group. And many states um, sided with Britain and the American plan to draw this partition line. But many of the newly independent states, the post-colonial nations that we've discussed many in Asia, later those in Africa, um, either chose to abstain or rejected this partition plan. Interestingly, um, one country that I work on, the Philippines, voted uh, in favor of partition, supported the American plan to design the two countries um, following the British model. But from the research that I've done um, with the representative who was uh, from the Philippines at the time in 1945, Carlos Romulo, his granddaughter, who I work with very closely on her family papers, um, she points out that the Philippines didn't want to vote in favor of partition, uh, but in fact were pressured by the Americans to do so. And that partly allowed this very controversial vote to go forward and for the partition plan to be passed by the assembly. So it was a very controversial moment um, in the history of the UN. It was a moment that brought together a lot of Arab and Asian states in opposition to this, uh, what was really perceived as being an imperial project to design this, um, to really reshape the Middle East according to British interests. So um, it passed, but it was a very controversial passage. Is there a line to be drawn, Basma, between that division mm -hmm. back then in the international community and the way the conflict has ended up the way it is today? Can, can you draw a line there? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, the state of Palestine hasn't been realized. I mean, that was always, um, if we talk about partition, it was to create a two-state solution at that time. I mean, I think what... Um, people don't recognize often um, is, is how unequal it was divided at that time. And if we take historic, the historic mandate of Palestine today, you know, the Palestinian people at the most recent negotiation were being offered like 14 to 12% of that historic Palestine. And, and back to 1947, when it was first devised, it was two thirds to a future Israeli state and one third to the Palestinian state. And as I always say, you know, people at that time, if you talk to Palestinians, the thought of them being told, you're going to have to give up two thirds of your territory for a refugee population undergoing a horrific massacre far, far away in Europe, it was just inconceivable to them. It just did not make sense. And I think anybody, if you just present that argument to them, um, doesn't make sense. But of course, you know, today that's often been used as an excuse to say, well, the Palestinians rejected a great deal, right? They were offered a state, one third of their territory. And now look what's on the table. We're looking at again, 14%. So there is this, um, I think, um, you know, history is always 2020, as they say, or, you know, it's, it's easy to, to look back and, and say, oh, it should have been realized. But I don't think uh, people understand the severity of how how crazy it sounded, frankly, right? It just sounded really unexplainable to say, well, why are you know why are Europeans effectively deciding this? Which, by the way, out of their own anti-Semitism, we have to remember, right? It's not it's not a you know a benevolent gift to the Jewish people as they believe it, which very much is to them. But in fact, 
the reason why we see so many of these Western, it's primarily Western states, because there were 56 at the time, 33 abstained. Those that voted were primarily Western states. Of course, you know, Philippines and others were on the outliers. It was out of their own anti-Semitism. They didn't want the Jewish population of Europe coming to them. So it was a matter of finding them an alternative home. And certainly, of course, there's a deep, deep historical resonance there. But that, I think, is a really important point that we often forget, is it just, it looks it looks so easy um, back then to say, you know, why not, why didn't the Palestinians accept that state? I'm wondering, when you look back at that year, 1947, you know, institutions like the United Nations and NATO and the IMF and all these institutions were supposed to help create a more peaceful world, a more stable world. But there was, you know, the beginnings of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There's the first Indochina War. The Cold War started almost immediately. What went wrong, Sanjay? (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm going to start playing the drums now. (laughs) Um, What went wrong? Well, I think this is where perspective really matters and where you are uh, affects how you think about that. So, you know, scholars often call the post-war era, post-Second World War era, until uh, 1989 is the Cold War era, is the long peace. So who is it a peace for? It's a peace for us who live here, which is why Putin's invasion of the Ukraine, mm-hmm. this brutal assault that we've seen in the last six months, many scholars today, if you listen to the CBC, and we have many all who say, you know, this is the greatest violation of the post-war order. It's, it's a violation of... States in Europe basically invading each other. That's why it's a violation and such a crisis. But of course, as you were saying, during the Cold War, there's multiple transgressions of the principles of the United Nations, of national sovereignty, of domestic non-interference. And you see that immediately, right? You, and so on the, on the Soviet side, you see the suppression of the Hungarian uprising 56 in, and, and Czechoslovakia in 68. And of course, terrible repression within the within the Soviet Union, which comes to light after Stalin's death. But on the other side, what's remarkable, of course, is you see the United States and Britain and France directly or indirectly intervening or supporting a whole series of military coups, overthrows, so of Mossadegh in Iran in 53, of the Arbenz regime in 54, yeah. of that support for the massacre of half a million communist members of the PKI in Indonesia in 65, of the support for the Pinochet regime assassinating Allende in 73. So what is remarkable is that this long peace in the West is at the expense of the global south, where these wars are. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that it's, it's not the case that the United States and Soviet Union are creating conflicts out of nothing. There are, but what they're doing is they're these incredibly powerful states and they're supporting one side with the other. And often they are directly abetting these horrific things that are happening. You think of the assassination of Lumumba in the Congo. You know, um, We think about Canada's role in peacekeeping, so important, that's to be person, right? That's great innovation. It comes out of the Congo, but yeah. why did that even begin to happen? It's because there was an assassination of a leader who the West thought was too radical. Yeah. And it supported that assassination. There's a historian, uh, Paul Chamberlain, who calls this period the Cold War's killing fields, that as many people died in the era of the Cold War related to Cold War interests, meaning either the interests of the United States Mm. or the Soviet Union, as died in World War II. And so when we think about casualties or violence, that this is a time in which most of the world, right, the majority people in the world are experiencing violent conflict. And many of those violent conflicts are 
amplified by the participation of the United States or the Soviet Union. So as the Cold War intensified at the time, or just past 1947, leaders from Africa and Asia formed their own kind of political movement, as you've mentioned, the non-aligned movement. Do any of you see any echoes of that in today's conflict, specifically in response to the Russia invasion of Ukraine? Somewhat. I mean, there is certainly a reaction today. There's a reaction uh, from, I'd say, primarily the global south, um, really calling out the Americans on their hypocrisy. I'm an absolute supporter of the Ukrainian people and their right to um, fight against the Russian aggression. But I think we would be remiss if we didn't point out that the narrative of this war is very different than what we've seen throughout modern times. And I think there is a sympathy here, uh, certainly for the Ukrainian people, that we just did not have for a lot of other people that were facing similar types of aggression. Mm-hmm. You know, I think as a person who's an avid watcher of the Middle East, and certainly looking at what the Russians did to Syria, for example, it just stands out. I mean, you know, before what you saw happening in, in parts of Ukraine, you saw similar, similar types of behavior in Aleppo, we saw similar types of behavior in Chechnya, uh, in Grozny, and the rest. I think there's an enormous amount of parallel you know, things happening. Um, in fact, they've learned along the way, and, and we saw some uh, changes in, in, in the Russian behavior based on that. But it really points out to this this challenge that we we constantly have, which is, you know, the, the Biden administration feels very comfortable without shame to talk about this is a fight against autocracies, this entire uh, war, um, the Russian war against Ukraine, you know, either you're with us or against us, and those who are in favor of autocracy are with the Russians, and those who are in favor of democracy are with the Americans. And yet, with the same breath, it's willing to, sh- you know, shake the hands of Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, you know, with, without even, you know, with no shame, with no, like, wait a minute, did, did is this the same person speaking? I mean, there's just an enormous amount of hypocrisy. And and frankly, much of the global South expected that. There, there's no surprise, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they're calling the West out and saying, wait a minute, you want us to have an economic, put in these economic sanctions against the Russians, and you want us to stop importing Russian oil and the rest. You're going to turn around and shake Putin's hand tomorrow. You're going to turn around and forget all of the crimes against humanity that has been done. So no, sorry, we're not going to follow your rules this time. And we saw that. This is a very clear moment, I think, where a number of countries, you know, big pro-Western countries, in fact, I mean, you think about India, I mean, you couldn't mm-hmm. get closer to being a very pro-Western country. And, and Turkey. He, and Turkey, yeah. Egypt, I mean, all of these countries basically said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Saudi Arabia, you know, even Saudi Arabia, right, said, no, we're not going to side with the Americans this time. And so there is a reaction, I think, of you know, you're not going to fool us this time. We know we know that you are very selective about where you believe democracy should go. We know you're very selective of the autocrats that you think are worth sanctioning today and, you know, forgiving tomorrow. And so we're not going to play by your rules. One final question to all of you, and then we'll wrap it up, is since we're at the Stratford Festival, in many of Shakespeare's plays, of course, as you will all know, uh, when the old order, <clears throat> excuse me, has collapsed and everyone's sort of bleeding on the stage, someone new comes along mm-hmm. and uh, they take over. And in many cases, they're just as bad as the <laughs> the original gang. <laughs> so today, I'm wondering if we could borrow from that. As the world order appears to be shifting and changing under our feet, who do you think stands to inherit mm-hmm. uh, the power out of the chaos? And it's it's a big question, I, re- I realize, but Besma, you can start us off. Yeah, I mean, definitely populist nationalists. I mean, I think there is a, 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 it's a perfect storm uh, for populist nationalists in that, 
again, you know, the the economic inequality in countries within countries is growing enormously. The haves and have-nots are growing enormously. We talked about globalization fracturing. Well, this only feeds to the populist nationalist narrative, right? We need to be self-sufficient. We need to do things on our own. We need to be prepared. All of this is about reshoring production back to to um, countries. All of that is is just, um, and, and I'll also quickly point out social media. I mean, the fact that we have a social media system, ecosystem that really forces people down this rabbit hole, right? The algorithms that are built into these social uh, media platforms are meant to really create division, to sow discord, to, you know, amplify the most, you know, awful voices in many ways. And it's, it's really by design. And uh, increasingly, we are becoming, I think, a very much an asocial society that has um, become more introverted. And this really just feeds the, the populist nationalists. This is what they love, people who are angry, people who are frustrated. And uh, populist nationalists are, have frankly been the most successful online, being able to use social media platforms. I mean, y- there's so many books to be written about how Modi's used the social media system. Mm-hmm. It's quite incredible. And if you can't control it, you know, if you can't necessarily, um, in, in, you know, let's say in India, uh, be able to capture it, then you control it like like the way President Xi does in China. You literally just make sure no one makes references to anything that you don't want to be discussed. A- and that is before us. It's become very much possible to create this firewall we are going towards perhaps a fractured internet. This has become a, a phenomenon that we don't talk about enough. And that really just means that there's less and less conversation, more chaos, more discord. So it, it's a scary time, but there is a perfect storm today that I think will bring to rise more and more populist nationalists. Trump may be gone, but he, Trumpism is coming back. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to be prepared for that, especially Canada, which, you know, obviously we... we we live in the shadows of the United States. Cindy, who stands to inherit from the chaos? Yeah, you know, in international relations theory, there's this idea that um, at the end of the international order, there'll be a multiplex world, that the world will be so fractured that there won't be a single power. China will not be the new United States, or there won't be a new Britain that will gloriously govern the world. Um, So, you know, for me, I, I think whoever can handle the technological developments of the future, while also somehow surviving climate disaster, will be the one who will get to determine um, much of our economic, cultural, and political future. But I, I can't, uh, as a historian, I will say I can't state that there'll be a single state or, or who it will be. But I, I think there's a, lot, uh, there's a lot of evidence that it isn't simply going to be what it has been in the past, with the United States being dominant and therefore displaced by China. There's this idea of the new Cold War, a new Cold War between the United States and China. I find that to be less convincing. I don't think that um, it'll be the case, or even the ambitions of China today are to be the next United States. I don't think there'll be a single state that will determine the international order. I think we will continue to live in a polarized and highly fractured time. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) From your vantage point, Sandy? I I agree with both Besma and Cindy. I think that nationalists are the ones who are who are sowing so much of the instability that we see, and they're the ones who are benefiting from it, at least in the short run. And I think, like Cindy was saying, I think just in virtue of the power they have, the United States and China, and the conflict that has just grown worse between them, I mean, these are the pivotal states of this decade, certainly, and if not further. And so I think everyone is trying to understand, all my, all my friends who are scholars of China, and I try to do it sort of secondhand, from India, 
what is Xi Jinping really thinking? And China has many severe challenges it faces. But I mean, he is, if, if you had to say the one person in the world who has power uh, that can really push history in a certain direction, it would have to probably be him. And the other one is, of course, is the question mark, the mystery is who's going to be the president of the United States mm -hmm. in 2024. Yeah. And that will, the curtain's still closed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as we said at the beginning, the overarching question here is, is of course, you know, how does change happen? Sanjay, could you address what, what we've learned in terms of the process of change too, from back then that could inform uh, us today and to be able to answer the question of how change happens? I think what's so striking about 1947, so it comes at the end of the Second World War, and that's, and I think that's the thing for those historians who look at big structures and large changes, you know, war famine, massive economic dislocation, depression. I mean, these are huge events. They're, they're, they're mass total migration too. massive migration, uh, ethnic cleansing that happened in the interwar period. You know, these are kind of big mass forces. And then what's crucial and what's remarkable about that period is they learned some lessons. They created a new, they created a new international uh, architecture. And that's what everyone's talking about today. You know, we have now suffered, we've suffered this pandemic, the worst since 1918, the Spanish influenza. And have our institutions in the world coped well? They haven't coped well at all. In fact, they've coped quite terribly when it comes to questions of equity. We've seen vaccine nationalism or what many in the global south will call vaccine apartheid. Mm -hmm. And we now have a war taking place in the heartland of Europe and the risk of war in the South China Seas. So war, uh, disease, massive economic recessions. I think, I think they, they sort of put history on the move, so to speak. And then what depends is how we respond to them. And so these massive events create these moments of opportunity. And, we, and that's when human agency becomes so important because you can make the wrong choices. Yeah. And that's a question today. What choices are we making? How do we respond to these? We can get it wrong. Yeah. To be continued. Thank you so much, all three of you, for your wonderful insights. Thank you. And uh, thank you. On Ideas, you've been listening to The Year 1947, Fractures and Tectonic Shifts. It's the fifth in our series, The Shock of the New, a collaboration with the Stratford Festival in Ontario. Joining me were Cindy Ewing, Professor of History at the University of Toronto, Sanjay Ruparelia, Professor of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University, and Besma Momani, Professor of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. This series was produced by Philip Coulter, Pauline Holdsworth, and me, Nala Ayed, with assistance for this episode by Nahid Mustafa. At the Stratford Festival, special thanks to Julie Miles and her team, Greg McLaughlin and Liz Thomas. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. The technical producer for Ideas is Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.